Welcome to Sane Split, a podcast about staying sane when relationships end. I am AJ Jakubowska, family law lawyer and mediator. Just like you, I'm human. I understand what can happen when people separate. Lots of questions swirling around like confetti. Lots of uncertainty, perhaps anger, disappointment, or even pain. Sleepless nights, shallow breathing. Will I ever be happy again? Will the kids be okay? How much is all this going to cost? All of these questions are human and you're not alone. This podcast features my thoughts about separation and my interviews with other humans who help people when their relationships end. People who assist with legal issues, who mediate, who look after hearts and minds, and even after the pocketbook. People who might help you plan your future. What you will hear is not legal advice. These are dialogues primarily about the human aspect of separation. We will try to stay away from legal lingo. It's humans talking to humans. I hope that something you hear will help you navigate your way to a sane split. Welcome and thank you for tuning in. My guest today is Elana Tamari, and I'm excited to share with you my conversation with her about two topics, how to talk to kids about separation and an overview of parenting coordination. Elana is a truly multifaceted professional, a mediator, arbitrator, parenting coordinator, and consultant. In our interview, you will also hear her talk about her role as an educator, a role she truly enjoys. Elena is an engaging, vivacious human, and she has a great way of talking about subjects which can be complicated. She makes them accessible and easy to understand. She's highly qualified to address our topics for today. To learn more about her, I encourage you to visit her very informative and intuitive website, elanatamari.com. I will include the website address in the notes to this episode as well. And now, my conversation with Elena. I enjoyed it very much. I know you will too. Elena, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for agreeing to do this. I hope our dialogue human to human helps someone out there. Please tell us a bit about yourself because I wanted my listeners to know why I thought you would be the perfect guest for our topics today. Uh, Well, first of all, I'm a mediator and arbitrator uh, in Toronto and I've been working in this field for over 40, oh, not 40, I'm dating myself. I am well over 40, but over 20 years. And I am soon going to be an empty nester because my child's off to university. So it's a whole new kettle of fish. So I'm a human being at the end of the day, like everybody else. Uh, But during uh, the day hours, I do work uh, primarily as a mediator and arbitrator. You come to this interview and our topics with a lot of experience. And I invite the guests to the uh, listeners to visit your website, which I think is terrific. It's very informative, and I'm going to have the uh, website address in the notes to this episode. 
How did you become interested in this field, Elena? Hmm. Great question, AJ. Like most things in life, a securitist route. Like most things in life. Um, at the time, I was pregnant with my daughter and I thought there needs to be another way for me to restructure work-life balance because I did uh, want to raise my daughter, but albeit wanted to have a career. And it was uh, a manager who was um, in-house at the Office of the Children's Lawyer, which is a branch of the Attorney General, as you know, that represents children in court proceedings. Primarily, you know, children whose parents are going through divorce. And they asked me if I wanted to consult to them. So in other words, kind of be on their panel, be able to be at home and consult. And at the time I said, you know, what do I know about family law and custody and access, which is like parenting time. And um, they said, you know, a lot, you've been doing therapy with families and divorce families. So I applied and I got accepted. I was actually one of the first people with a psych degree to get accepted. They were impartial at the time to people who had social work degree. And I was the first person that they actually accepted here. I'm dating myself again with a psych degree rather than a social work degree. Um, and so I uh, applied, got in. And then before I know it, I was in this neck deep and I love it. Um, I most notably love educating people during the most stressful times of their life. And that is what separation and divorce is the most stressful time that people are going to find themselves in up there with death moving terminal cancer diagnosis it really is i i can't emphasize that enough and um Often when people are getting a divorce, as you know, AJ, they're feeling all the stress, but they're feeling a lot of shame and they, they go through periods of depression and anxiety and maybe some alcohol use and they feel like they're alone. And it's actually not true. Um, you know, the research and the facts bear that if someone is not feeling depressed and anxious, what are they a robot then they, they can't be human because this is this is a monumental shift and a life change for them terrific terrific points and i am thrilled to hear you're echoing some of the comments i made in earlier episodes i think it's important for people whose relationships break down to understand that they're not alone that they may be feeling a range of emotions which change literally day to day if not hour to hour and there is no shame, no stigma in reaching out for help. And there's lots of help out there. And you are one of the professionals who uh, can and uh, does help uh, couples and individuals as well. I wanted us to talk about kids and separation. That is one of the topics for today. When you hear the words children and separation, Elena, what comes to mind? Uh Guilt, shame, blame, uh, both from the parents feeling it themselves. And also, um, ironically enough, children feel those things too. Feel Children often feel like they're to blame. Maybe they were cause of the divorce, right? Children have their own issues, whether uh, they're learning issues or behavioral issues or things like anorexia. And they think that maybe that was the tipping point for the marriage. 
And they, they won't articulate that succinctly like this, but that is what they're thinking. And it's very normal to, to think that way. And most parents will tell you if they knew that their children were thinking that way, they would really educate them that they were not the reason for the divorce. Very interesting points. I had talked at one of the earlier episodes about uh, children blaming themselves uh, even when parents reassure them that they're not to blame, a lot of children internalize. A lot of children deal with this differently. They externalize, they act out. So we'll talk about that a little bit. So I love hypotheticals, uh, examples. My listeners know that by now. If you had two parents who had just separated, sitting across from you, and they had kids, what is the first thing that you would say to them? I would say that they really need to be on the same page and particularly have a, a narrative that they're going to share with their children um, to inform the children of the imminent separation. Um, and I would say to them that what matters most is how smoothly they're able to separate from each other, separate from each other in terms of the marital unit of no longer being husband and wife, but getting much more cohesive and together in terms of the parenting unit as mother and father, because that is going to extend into their children's adolescence and post-adulthood. Uh, and it doesn't just uh, come into play on things like christenings and bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs and graduations in school and Christmas concert, but it goes on into their adult life in terms of when their children get engaged and have weddings and um, get pregnant themselves, that they are lifelong mother and father, or if it's a same-sex couple, both mothers and fathers to their children throughout and that is really critical for parents to understand that. So I take it you share my view that where possible, parents should try and break the news to the kids together, explain to them what they are doing together so that uh, that, that has a better chance of being received uh, by the children in a more positive way. I absolutely 100% concur with that. And I even say to, to parents, um, script this out ever so loosely before you even embark on that. So I, I want to make sure that, you know, parents, um, some of them are, one of them is more introverted, some of them are more extroverted, and there's a whole gamut. But I want to make sure that both parents have some airtime with the children because if they don't both speak to the children at the same time and have roughly equal airtime with the children, the children will make up their own minds of who was to blame for the separation. And you don't want that. You don't want children trying to think a step ahead. Did, you know, this one parent leave my other parent for this reason? And if they both have roughly the same airtime when they're talking to the children about the imminent separation, it shows like a cohesive united front as parents. And that is huge. I agree. Now, children uh, are not a homogeneous group meaning they differ in ages and stages of development and temperament, resilience. This is a big topic, perhaps, for 
uh, a separate podcast episode, but I wonder if you could comment a little bit on uh, how parents may break the news to uh, younger kids versus older kids. Well, I, I, that's a really important piece that you're raising. I think the parents should approach it in an age-appropriate way. Um, and so if they have, you know, younger kids, they should always speak in very, you know, simple, simplistic terms that they understand. And so younger kids typically want to know whether they'll stay in the same home, whether they'll go to the same school, whether they'll be able to play with their peers on the street and in their neighborhood. Those are things that are important and cogent for children and even adolescent, believe it or not. It's as important for adolescent as it is for young children. So I would say to parents to be transparent as much as possible with age-appropriate language, depending on the age of the children. But I also think it's okay for parents not to have all the answers and to say to their kids, you know, that's a great question, whether you're going to stay in this home and whether you're going to stay at the same school. You know, we haven't figured it together yet as parents. We don't have those answers, but we're working on it. So reassure them that you as a unit are working on trying to give them as much stability as possible. But it's okay for parents not to have all the answers. They're not going to have all the answers. I think if it sounds too scripted, kids get suspicious too. I think it's more natural for kids to uh, hear, uh, 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 I don't know, as opposed to something that comes out and they understand it's just a scripted answer. So uh, thank you for that. Now, sometimes... Parents come to me and say that their children in the context of a separation are acting in an unusual way, or they have changed their habits, or they are withdrawn or attention-seeking, and there are lots of other examples. How would a separated parent know that their child may require counseling, for example, or some other assistance to help them deal with the separation? Great question again, AJ. I often tell parents to look out in terms of red flags for changes in their kids' peer groups and changes in their grades. And believe it or not, the misnomer is if they're getting poor grades, that that is a red flag. It is if it's a change. But believe it or not, also a kid going from a B student to an A or an A plus student is as worrisome because that child may be over-functioning in school to mitigate any kind of emotional distress they've been feeling at home or internalizing. And parents may not pick up on that flip side. They may think, oh, my kid's doing great now. Like, you know, he, she was a B or C student. Now it's like straight A's. It's not such a good sign. Not if it's an imminent separation and divorce. They may be overcompensating. Those kids may be overcompensating and they're missing out on some of the uh, internal emotional turmoil that that child uh, may be experiencing. But those are kind of the two hallmarks, school and peer groups, to look at marked changes in that. And so I'm hearing what parents should be looking for is a change from previous behavior and not simply write off that change if they see it's an, they've interpreted as an improvement, right? Mm -hmm. Different kinds of changes may be signaling different things. And your example of uh, improved, vastly improved grades is a very interesting one. 
So well, they should cut their kids slack, just like they would want their employer to cut them slack. You know, when parents go through a separation and divorce, you know, maybe they're leaving work a little earlier or coming in later. Maybe, um, you know, they're a little bit more on edge and they want their colleagues and their boss to understand it. The same goes for children. Uh, cut your children some slack. Uh, it's okay for them, not just okay, it's healthy for them to express sadness or anxiety. Uh, you want them doing that because then they're less likely to show externalized maladaptive behavior if they're able to articulate what they're feeling, even if it's through uh, behavioral modes of, as I said, crying or being short-tempered. Cut your kids slack. Hard time for everybody. Terrific point. Hard, hard time for everyone. A terrific point that I want to uh, re-emphasize. So circling back to the words children and separation, Elena, what would your overall advice be here in human-to-human uh, -human terms? What would you be telling fellow humans about this issue? I, I think probably one of my biggest takeaways uh, that I try to impart on parents and try to impart on them in terms of when I blog to educate them is that children from divorced families can look the same as children from nuclear families, exactly the same. The research bears that out. Where they don't is when parents show disdain for one another and it's either overt or covert. It's either hidden or it's out there for everyone to see. It's when they're disrespectful to one another and show uh, disdain and animosity. Those are the children who don't fare well. Those are the children that look markedly different from like more intact families. And you also have to remember, intact families doesn't necessarily mean happy families. There's right. a lot of intact families that are not happy families. That's right. So we're looking at, you know, in terms of research, comparing children from divorce versus intact families. Okay. And where they look different is when there's terrible animosity um, and disdain. There's that phrase we've often heard you and I, and I think you say something along these lines on your website, that when... When adults separate, they don't stop being parents to their children. They stop perhaps being romantic partners, but they will remain parents to their children and they have a responsibility to act appropriately, which includes their conduct towards one another, particularly when children are watching or listening. They do have to remember they're leaving each other as as uh, an intimate uh, unit, as a romantic yes. unit, but they're not leaving each other as parents. And for that child or children, it's still a family. Their family continues. It may be that their parents no longer live together, but it's still their family. It just demographically, they have two homes. But that's the extent of it. And I think that's the, the biggest pill that parents have to swallow. They can't, they, they can't X out the other parent just because they want the divorce. That, that other parent is still part of that child's family and will be forever going forward. And, and, and I think that pill may be hard to swallow differently depending on who ended the relationship. 
So the, the, the individual, the person who ended their relationship, as I said in one of my earlier episodes, they just want to get on with it. They want to start what they see as their new life. Uh, when you suggest to them they need to cooperate with the other parent because they continue to be parents, uh, what do you mean I have to uh, cooperate? I just want to get on with it. For the other parent, the parent who was on the receiving end of the decision to end the relationship, that idea of continuing to be in active contact with the other spouse may be particularly emotional. It may be hurtful to them because they carry disappointment or grief or suspicion. And so that's a different side of the coin when you are uh, pitching to uh, the parent left behind, so to speak, that they continue that they need to continue to be in touch with the other parent. You are also, in addition to your um, uh, work as a mediator and arbitrator, you're also a parenting coordinator. And I wanted to speak a bit about this. Um, listeners to this podcast who are parents may already have heard this phrase parenting coordination, but they may not know much about it. So for them, and also for those who may be hearing uh, this for the first time, what is parenting coordination, Elena? Usually parenting coordination is reserved for more like high conflict divorces, uh, moderate to high conflict, where the parenting coordinator is assigned to help like implement or enforce the parenting plan that's already in place. So when parents separate and they have children, they need a parenting plan. How are the children going to go back and forth between two homes? So a parenting coordinator looks at that agreement and helps to make sure that there's a smooth implementation of it. And so it's really having someone on standby for um, helping with uh, the agreement, interpreting the agreement, seeing how it could be followed through, maybe amending aspects of the agreement that they hadn't thought of in advance when they entered into that parenting plan agreement, where things aren't working as smoothly as they had hoped, and they want uh, a professional to, to help smooth that over and maybe rejig it. Uh, So that's really what a parenting coordinator does. And there's much greater understanding of it now than there was 10 or 15 years ago. 10 or 15 years ago, even family lawyers weren't even sure what that was. They'd call me and say, you know, could we, you know, retain you as a parenting coordinator? And I'd say, fine, great. And then they'd say, so we need a parenting plan. And I'm like, okay, well, that's not parenting coordination. That's mediation to develop a parenting plan. So I think that's a very... I think that's a very important point to make, that when you do those two different jobs, you wear two different hats. When you are asked by parents or their lawyers or both to help the parents formulate a plan, a parenting plan, you are working as a mediator. Uh, A parenting coordinator is someone who helps enforce an existing parenting plan. Right. Exactly. And a parenting coordinator cannot vary from that plan in terms of the substantive issues like 
uh, custody, which is going to be changing the language come the new Divorce Act, which is being instituted in March of uh, 2021, given COVID. It was supposed to come in July. Um, but, you know, if, if the parenting plan says joint custody and the children will go, you know, in a certain manner in terms of a schedule, a parenting co- coordinator does not have the authority to vary from that, okay, under the law. So let's pick up on an earlier point and then we'll come back to the role of the parenting coordinator in actually making decisions. So being an arbitrator, we'll explain to the listeners what that is. Let's come back to how this role can come about. In other words, uh, can you be a parenting coordinator in a parenting plan, which the parties crafted together but the court has not been involved in? Definitely, definitely. Most of them are are actually like that. And so the other option, to clarify for our listeners, would be a parenting plan that's made by a family court judge, and it includes a provision for a parenting coordinator, correct? Correct. So a a, a parenting coordinator can be initiated... um, as long as there's a parenting plan um, that's in effect, that's signed upon. And a parenting coordinator could just be retained if the parents do so on consent, so both parents agree as to who they want to retain, or it's court appointed. Most of them come by way of parents consenting. Uh, Elena has... Uh, this is uh, me speaking to the listeners. Elena has a separate page on her uh, very useful website devoted to parenting coordination. And she discusses this concept in some detail, including steps which parents would take to get her involved in a case as a parenting coordinator. So if anyone is uh, interested in either the concept or learning more about Elena as a parenting coordinator, please Uh, go to her website. And again, I will include uh, the website address in the notes for this episode. Uh, Are there any other comments, Ilana, that you uh, have for us about parenting coordination in general? Why, why, for example, uh, are you a supporter of the idea? Well, am I a supporter of the idea? That's, that's, it's not, I'm not always a supporter of the idea. Sometimes it's contraindicated to be quite frank with you. Sometimes uh, parents try to like weaponize the parenting coordination. Okay. So I, I, I would say it's on a case by case basis, whether it's helpful. If a parent wants to weaponize it, and what I mean is they want to be able to call the parenting coordinator on all matters, even very minor matters where they Um, need to uh, co-parent with the other one, that is contraindicated to have a parenting coordinator in place. It's really incumbent on parents to attempt to co-parent with one another. If someone wants to retain a parenting coordinator because they vilify the other parent and they want nothing to do with them and they want the third person professional as a buffer, uh, that's not ideal. That's not ideal. Uh, Costs will run up high and that's not the way to go about things. It's better for them to work on having a better parental uh, role and maybe more of like a business role together. 
when people are in business, sometimes they're in business with people that they don't particularly care for. Uh, but it doesn't stop them from being in business. They just learn how to, you know, manage that better. So it, it uh, is not a hat for all people. It really should be reserved for ones that really need um, enforcement and implementation for the parenting plan, as opposed to parents who want to use it to, to weaponize the, the separation and the divorce. I'm so very glad you raised the point about uh, this uh, being misused as a weapon to draw out the process, to keep the parties engaged, to increase costs needlessly. That's an excellent point. Um, I was going to move to uh, an off-topic area of our discussion, but I don't want to miss a point I made earlier, and that is about the role of a parenting coordinator as a decision maker. So there is a point in the role of a parenting coordinator where he or she, if empowered by the parties to do so, can make decisions. Tell us a little bit more about that, please. And perhaps you can give us an example of an issue that the parenting coordinator would be deciding on. Uh, some of the things that come into play are things potentially about schooling. When the parenting plan was uh, put into effect, the children were of uh, a younger age, four or five. Now maybe they're 10. And there is a dispute as to which school. And uh, there are um, other issues that come into play with it. They're child or children have been diagnosed with things like giftedness or having some exceptionalities and need a certain school and there's disagreement on it, that's where uh, a parenting coordinator could be empowered to um, make a decision. Uh, most parenting coordinators who I know, really, uh, that's the last resort. They don't want to have to be the decision maker um, and be like the third party professional deciding such monumental decisions. They really would rather come to consensus building via the mediation process of the parenting coordination contract. Having so, said that, yes, fails, I'm sorry, I they will yes. they will have to um, make a decision on things like schooling, things like extracurricular activity, things like Section 7 expenses, which is extraordinary expenses, like, uh, you know, AAA hockey, horseback riding, jazz or tap, which is more of a cost burden for parents when children are engaged in those kind of extracurricular activities. So those are other areas as well. When there's an absolute disagreement and you've tried a fulsome effort at mediation, and there's still an impasse. That is when a parenting coordinator is often empowered to make a decision. Terrific examples. Very practical. So our listeners can understand uh, what kind of decisions uh, you would be uh, involved in. So I take it, uh, in fact, I know from practice, having worked with parenting coordinators, that your role is really multifaceted. You're a bit uh, of a mediator. You're a bit of a counselor. You're a bit of a coach because, as you said, arbitration, in other words, you're actually making decision is the last resort. So you will try different methods of uh, getting these parties closer to each other in their positions before you put on your arbitrator hat, the decider hat. Am I right about that? 
Precisely. It's exactly as you said, multifaceted. A big component is an educational component to educate parents and to empower them to communicate more effectively. That's a huge role. Huge. Um, I very much appreciate your input on all these topics. I think that our listeners will find uh, them helpful. And uh, now I would like to move to a subject uh, uh, that I also uh, quite enjoy. Uh, one of my favorite podcasts is Alan Alda's Clear and Vivid. And Alan has a terrific interview device. At the end of each interview, he asks uh, his guests seven questions. I'm not going to ask seven questions. I'm going to ask three. And I'm actually going to steer them in a particular direction. And that is food, because I feel food is an adventure. And these questions give us an opportunity to get to know you a little bit better. So Elena, are you ready? I am ready. It's a topic that's dear and near to my heart. (laughs) I should say to my stomach. (laughs) Terrific. So question number one, what is your favorite food or cuisine? Bar none, bar none, all things Asian. And I say that as a a middle-aged Jewish woman, all things Asian. You are a girl after my own heart because my answer would be exactly the same. So um, I have family in Singapore. I'm very lucky to have a brother and a family living there. And uh, going to Singapore is just a foodie's dream. So question number two, why Asian food? What makes it special for you? Why, why is it Asian food? I find it is such a complex set of flavors, so multifaceted from spicy to sweet to salty. And uh, that's why I love it. I, I love it too, for all those reasons. Uh, and the colors are vivid and bright. And uh, when we say Asian, of course, that's a very broad category because you mm-hmm. can have uh, Filipino food and uh, uh, Vietnamese, Vietnamese food. Yes. Thai, Japanese, sushi, you know, Shanghainese food, Cantonese, you name it. When I said all things Asian, I meant it. All things Asian. When, when the pandemic is over, or maybe when it's safer for us to do so, maybe you and I can get together and share some um, Asian food, perhaps at your favorite restaurant, which is the third question. Is it here in Ontario? Um, it is, actually. It is. And actually, before the pandemic, my daughter surprised me with making a reservation at one of them, which is my favorite kin. I don't know if you know that one on Adelaide. Yes. The, the kin. So we had gone there to celebrate something for her and she knew how much I loved it. So she had made reservations months in advance. And my birthday is in May just to find out that she had to cancel it. But she was so excited just to have made the reservations, knowing that I will be so thrilled. And, uh, you know, hopefully they're still in business. I don't even know. Given the pandemic has really wreaked havoc with uh, restaurants, and especially the ones that, you know, weren't able to pivot to takeout, um, I really do hope that they're still in business. I hope so, too. I hope so, too. Um, 
I really love Asian food and I'm so thrilled to hear. I didn't know what your answers to these questions would be ahead of time. So it was a big surprise for me and a happy surprise that you and I share this love for Asian food. Elena, we've come to the end of our interview. I truly appreciate your uh, participating and giving uh, our listeners an opportunity to get to know you better. Um, again, uh, your website is very informative, and uh, I will share information about it in the podcast notes. Uh, thank you very much, and we hope, I hope we get a chance to share some Asian food uh, together soon. Thank you. I would love that. The sooner the better. That would be wonderful, AJ. Thank you, Alana. You're welcome. All the best. Thank you for listening. I hope you will tune in again. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach me through my website, separationinontario.com. Subscribing to the podcast through your favorite app will make future episodes available to you automatically. Signing off for now.